This episode of The Ship Show is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip is a free, hosted, continuous delivery service that just works. CodeShip runs your automated tests and configured deployments when you push to your repository. It takes care of managing and scaling the infrastructure so that you are able to test and release more frequently and get faster feedback for building the product your users need. CodeShip has great support for lots of languages and test frameworks. It integrates with GitHub and Bitbucket and lets you deploy to cloud services like Heroku, AWS, Nojitsu, Google App Engine, your own service and others. It sends notifications to the GitHub API, email, Slack, HipChat, Flowdoc, Grove, and Campfire. They are very much focused on usability and simplicity. Setup only takes one minute. Find them on www.codeship.io slash theshipshow and get a 20% discount for three months on any plan by using the discount code theshipshow. Try CodeShip. It's free and it makes continuous delivery simple. To ship, of course. It is the Ship Show, Build Engineering, DevOps, Release Management, and Everything in Between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, SoberBuildEng on Twitter, and it's SoberBuildEngineer.com, who is with me for episode, oh, 40, I think it, this is 49. This is Seth at Chief on Twitter. This is Pete at PeteChessLock on Twitter. And this is Yusuf at Bell Scientist on Twitter. How is everybody doing? Good. Doing great. How about yourself? I am doing fine. I'm getting ready for DevOps Days Chicago, which I'm very excited about. I'm actually speaking there, but there's, but that's actually not why I'm excited. I'm excited because Bridget will be speaking, Fletcher will be speaking. Those are just the ones I remember off the top of my head. I'm sure there are more awesome people speaking at DevOps Days Chicago. That is uh, next week, I believe. And then also, like, I get to see some of the co-host peeps. Chef Summit's coming up. Yeah, Chef Summit's coming up this week. I'm. I, I told uh, Nathan to not expect too much out of me. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be showing up to uh, hang out. That's. I think. I think that's what most people are doing. Yeah. Um, this will be. That's, that's, that's the beauty of Chef Summit. You know, go and yeah. hang out with a bunch of people, and you're all doing chef stuff, and you get to chat about the future. And I don't know. I'm going to miss it. I went last year, and. Maybe the year before. Why you know awesome. Chef Summit, Pete? Don't, do you not love us anymore, Pete? What did, uh, what did we do wrong? Why you know? Did we, did we break your heart? Uh, you no, no, you're all awesome. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm like super sad, but you know we're we're so at the new place. We're shipping our GA product at reInvent in whatever. I don't know, like six weeks. <laughs> weeks. I'm kind of running. I'm running out of time here, so <laughs> I actually. I actually have to work. So you now. basically have to like learn all of your skills and then deploy them before this this uh, conference. Yeah, you know, basically you have to like build the product and then ship it. So we're good, <laughs> we're good to go. That's probably fine, Pete. Yeah, it's probably fine. <laughs> Speaking of which, episode forty nine, we are covering PuppetConf review of PuppetConf. Um, we're going to talk about some of the announcements they had there and uh, just what uh, the vibe of of uh, PuppetConf twenty fourteen was. That's up shortly. But uh, first up. As always, news and views. So you had to live under a rock if you hadn't heard of Shellshock, the bash vulnerability with the cute name, which apparently all real exploits now have to have. No Maybe logo, though. Were, Paul, were you going for the rhyme there? Because that was, that was pretty awesome. Uh, no, I was not, but yes. <laughs> oh, you should um, be taking credit for that. 
Yeah, I, I, I should have. So, Shellshock, the one thing I find most amusing about it, and I, and I, uh, I read, I, th- there was already buzz on the tweet sphere about this. After it came out, it was patched, and then somebody was saying, oh, actually, there are other ways to get around this. Our resident security expert, Pete, what do you have to say about this? Well, clearly, we're f***ed. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, let's be honest. It's a real talk. It's a, yeah, real talk now. No, I mean, let's be honest. It's a 30-year-old bug in Bash in how it evaluates environment variables. Like, I just don't even know what to say. <laughs> like, what, you're, what you're saying, the NSA is like, damn it, they found the thing. <laughs> we even missed this one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, it's just, it's, it's really kind of comical. I'm actually not at all surprised to hear when they found the first, when they found the initial bug, the first CVE that came out. I mean, I was talking in the office with some friends, and I was like, I'll guarantee you there's going to be at least one other. I mean, because what happens is you're going to get a ton of eyes on the code. It was just like Heartbleed, right? You had a bunch of eyes on the code, and then, you know, in the days and weeks afterwards, you know, a lot of a lot more, like, open SSL updates came. I have no idea if that'll happen for Bash, just because, like, I don't, I'm not aware of there being kind of, like, a central group of people that are, like... Well, the, one ship today. Yeah, we've um, got, we've got, what do we have, five now? Five CVs? Yeah. Oh, there was another CV. Well, so, so, yeah. so, six, so, so, six, six total. I was five, laughing. Didn't you see it was all like BRB updating Bash again. Oh no! It was that. Do you see that? Like the, everyone was posting the like the crons or the loops, like just basically <laughs> continuous continuous app get upgrading. Continuous deployment of Bash. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually funny because when I pushed the like chef update to like update Bash on all the systems, it's like you know basically call like app get update and at, you know Bash upgrade. And so I've I've just been too lazy to go back and actually remove that code, and it's it's worked out in my favor because it's, <laughs> it's like every thirty minutes I'm getting the newest Bash update. So. There you go. Yeah, that's yeah. great. It was it was funny because I had so I had to actually update some of my systems uh, on the side because it was like oh oh it's just bash okay well what is that thing and they're like oh crap anything CGI FCGI and I'm like well that's basically everything right um, and so they'd have to go out and update and then it's just like oh this is this is not fun this is not something I wanted to deal with today yeah, I found out that Ubuntu a lot of the Ubuntu distros are linked to Dash instead of Bash for systems so like there was a little bit of a dodge on some things yeah but the big thing that I saw and I could not believe this and and I'll have to, I'll link I'll dig it up in the and link to it in the show notes but there's something about there's like a field in the DHCP protocol where oh, you yeah. that submit a bad. command and that happens to be run by Bash and because we're bad at computers. That stuff tends to run as root. So it's like if you're at you know malicious Wi-Fi uh, at a coffee shop or something, they can own you that way. Yeah, I was. Right. I actually decided to stay home. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I'm going to use my my protected connection. And I also uh, double checked my router to make sure it wasn't vulnerable. Uh, just because you you know you, yeah, we'll throw yeah. that in there. Mom, yeah, bad times. So shameless plug uh, for for my company. Sorry, <laughs> uh, you know our so our founder uh, Jen Andre. Uh, so she she was like, oh well, I want to I want to like exploit something with this bash bug and like maybe we'll write a blog post about it. And I was like, oh awesome, like let's do it. And so she's like, well, what what should I exploit? Like what's what's something that a lot of people use and and is probably going to be vulnerable really easily? And I was like, well, oh let's do Nagios. So like so basically she like stood up the Nagios instance and just kind of showed an example of like. Here's you know us owning an Agio server, and I was I like, I saw that. <laughs> it's like, great, yeah. Well, as you said, we're all. <laughs> yeah. Good thing. Good thing. No one uses Nagios, so. Or bash, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh god. 
<laughs> Actually, this is a good segue into Cloudflare uh, kind of announced an interesting development, Keyless SSL. It's basically, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot on the show about SSL fail and SSL sadness, but this was actually a technical solution to being able to deploy in a, uh, in a cloud environment certs without having the private key on the, the cloud environment. Did you see this, Pete? Did you guys see this? See this development? It's pretty interesting. Yeah, th- this is actually pretty cool, and I'm not going to say that I understand even a bit <laughs> about... I think the blog post was phenomenal by Cloudflare. Like, they're just shipping amazing features. They're they're really... I mean, I give them a lot of credit for the, what they're trying to do and strengthening the Internet. I think they announced, like, free SSL today, which is pretty amazing. But the thing on the keyless SSL is pretty amazing. I think in the blog post they talked about how the reason, like, the company they were talking to, which was some large financial, it it was something where, like, they couldn't give them their their private key because that was something that they would report to, like, the Fed. Um, Right. And that's kind of frowned upon. So um, (laughs) what is it? Just post that on on AWS. Yeah, Uh, it's it's probably fine. Just just it. It'll be cool. What is what is very interesting though is because I know Akamai is is obviously a, a powerhouse in the CDN world and and they're pretty big in this this area obviously in, in the Boston area, so they actually have a patent that is I don't know like four months prior to the Cloudflare patent so Cloudflare patented this thing but also Akamai has so I'll be very interested because Akamai is they're not going to sit and patent not match. Yeah, so they're not going to sit back. I think I, I think it'll be really interesting because I know a few people in the area have kind of poised that question of, well, how does this differ from what Akamai is doing? So it is pretty interesting because basically two incredibly powerful, strong companies with brilliant people essentially both coming to the same, maybe slightly different solutions to the same problem and then patenting it. And so right. now it's going to go to the courts, I, I would imagine, just because that's how they roll. <laughs> right. It'll be interesting to see, too, if, uh, like, you'll still see the, oh, we forgot to renew our, our cert <laughs> secret, right? <laughs> so you still get failures of expired secrets, even though they're not out on the cloud. Next up, we have a post from DZone on continuous delivery, who is handling what. This was from their developer survey and their 2014 guide to continuous delivery, uh, which I have an article in on the pitfalls of continuous delivery. But anyway, this was an infographic they created has some interesting stuff in there. Yusuf, you found this. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really interesting infographic. They, they talk about um, display rather some percentages of people who are using things like issue tracking, version control, you know, CI, uh, that type of thing. The couple things that I found really interesting. One, they split organizations under 500 um, employees and organizations over 500. And they were asking who handles code deployments. So with organizations that are under 500, development handles that. You know, the majority of the, the I guess, people who provided data for the survey. And then once you get over 500, it's actually operations. I kind of found that to be a, an interesting uh, a metric. The other thing that I found really interesting is they also asked the question of which software lifecycle environments does your continuous delivery extend to? And overwhelmingly, 60% of, I guess, surveyors said that they want to implement um, infrastructure. So it kind of shows that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in that, you know, kind of arena. And I know... Um, databases is hard. I know, I was going to say, I said, you know, I mean, databases was crazy. Yeah, I, I think database has been traditionally pretty high, but it's interesting to see infrastructure sort of going over application build um, management. It's, it's right. you know especially with a lot of the stuff that's being done with Docker and you know all that good stuff out there. So yeah, definitely an interesting, at least from a statistical standpoint. 
The other thing I love too, who handles code deployments, 16% and 18% for both of the over and under 500 DevOps. Yeah. <laughs> the DevOps does yeah, it. The elusive DevOps. <laughs> wandering, wandering in the forest, deploying code. Yeah, <laughs> sprinkling code. Sprinkling edges. <laughs> yeah. Last up tonight, we have kind of a fun article. Uh, a lot of us work remotely, or, or that's in our industry. Certainly a thing that is starting to uh, become more prevalent. An article from The Atlantic on a study that's saying what we all sort of thought nobody is paying attention to your conference call. Some interesting information there. I think the best graph they have is what else are employees doing during conference <laughs> calls? Um, eating or making food, 55%. Going to the restroom, 47%. Wait, wait, wait. wait. While on the call, I mean... Yeah. I, I shouldn't be surprised because, I mean, the number of people that use the phone... Have you made a grilled cheese while on a conference call? It's the best thing ever, man. <laughs> Checking social media, definitely have done that. Here's what I don't get. 6% are taking another phone call. <laughs> you know, that doesn't surprise me, knowing some of the sales folks that I've worked with. Yeah, it's true. They would always. actually just take, yeah, always be hustling. Like. Yeah, always be closing. Come on. Yeah, I've, I've, it doesn't really surprise me because I've been in some of these meetings you know, in prior companies. You know, they just got to figure out a better way to disseminate that information. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. There, there have been a few. I remember one of the most tragic ones I was on a conference call with. It was like, you know, large, really, really large, like hosting type company, just think massive. And so we're on, we're on the call and there were 29 people on the call, like three of which had any reason to be there. Like, <laughs> and it was just people talking at people about things completely unrelated to the meeting. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I read a book during right. that meeting. Like it was, it was just that bad. Um, yeah, I've had, the, I've had the thing where I was on a call and it was like, folks, you do realize you just paid for 15 minutes of my time for me to listen to you arguing about whether or not you want to put a document on the <laughs> or, or the definition of a word. A right. Word it's easily, it's, it can easily yeah. be looked up on the internet and yet they're going to sit on a call with 30 people and argue the definition. Oh, well. Anyway, yes, uh, link, we'll link to that in the show notes. You can check out what other things people are doing while they are not paying attention to your meeting. Next up, we're going to be talking Papa Comp 2014. Welcome back to the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed. So we are here recording live at PuppetConf 2014 in San Francisco with a distinguished panel to help us look back at the conference. So who's here with us? Hi, I'm Ryan Coleman. I'm the product manager for The Forge. I'm Deepak Giridharagopal. I'm director of engineering for Puppet Platform. I'm uh, Chris Bertard. I'm the chief trolling officer at Inuits. Nigel Kirsten, chief insurrection officer at Puppet Labs. Tom Foster, director of community at Puppet Labs. Welcome to the show. So I wanted to start with the keynote, Luke's keynote, a lot of interesting announcements there. It was called uh, Nearly a Decade of Puppet, What We Learned and Where We're Going to Go Next, which obviously, you know, this is one of those where we're going to announce a bunch of stuff. But one theme that I kind of noticed in a lot of the talks, Don, yours as well, was sort of this kind of reflection on, on where we've been and, and how we got where we are. Did you see that as well in the, in the conversations and talks that you had? Well, I would take a step back from the keynote. We had the Contributor Summit the day mm -hmm. before, and, and that was very much, you know, reflection for, for my part. We did a, a modules track, mm -hmm. and that was, you know, 
all these module contributors getting together to talk about module contributions. And for me, that was a lot of what have we been doing the last year? What investments have we made on supported modules and trying to get all of the forge up to a higher bar? And yeah, a lot of that was just the successes and the, and the misses of the year. And I think a, a lot of optimism about what we can do next year. Yeah, and I thought that was a great way to kick off Puppet Conf as well, because we, we had a lot of people there who've been contributing to Puppet for many, many years, uh, alongside new people who are just starting to contribute. So it was a really, really interesting way to kind of kick off the, the week. We, I think you do see that a lot, and we see it a lot in DevOps days that's uh, you know almost five years old now, and the groups of new people coming in, mixing with like the people that have been there forever and sort of get it. So it's interesting, right? That, that must be difficult on like putting a program together that has enough new content talks for newbies and people that are trying to get in and then people are like I've seen the you know the, the, the talk on the forge five times or whatever it is right you know? that yeah. came up too yeah. <laughs> yeah what I think really worked with the contributor summit was especially in the afternoon the whole thing was based around kind of hacker tables so you could pick your topic and there were going to be a few people who had been contributing to that project for a long time and a few people who probably are newer and just starting and so it I think it sort of leveled the playing field a little bit and let people work together in a way that's you know not just people listening to presentations. When we sat down and looked at the submissions for the conference we pretty much we could have filled a whole advanced track conference we could have filled a whole complete beginner track conference but it's picking that balance in between that I think is really interesting. Well you see this a lot too is which is great you see in fact I had a conversation at the evening party with um, somebody who was here from I think I want to say William and Mary College and we were chatting and and uh, they actually they did that this is so weird for me they was the people come and they recognize the voice and I'm like I'm just talking with a, <laughs> but but he came over and introduced himself but what was fascinating to me is is then one of his employees came over and introduced himself and it was the younger employee that was like I want to do this configuration management stuff and had gotten him into it and dragged him to the conference so not only is it that but if you have uh, groups of people that are coming together it's hard they want to go to the same presentations because they're with the person but it may be somebody who's like very new versus somebody who's who dragged the organization into doing this sort of stuff I think with, with respect to where we've been and how far we've come. I mean, I think I, I was running the core contributor room during the contributor summit. And I think it's very interesting because I've been involved with Puppet for forever. Both Nigel and I were at the very first Puppet conflict, two thousand and eight, two thousand nine. I think I don't even remember yeah, something like that. It was in very the, different in but, the noughties. Yeah, in the exactly. <laughs> it was a simpler time. <laughs> but I think uh, definitely the the group of people, sort of the Venn diagram between people that were contributors to core stuff. And people that were using Puppet, writing manifests and modules and things like that, there was a lot of overlap, you know, because you were seeing kind of the early adopter phase. And I think now it's very, very different. We actually did this in Ghent, and we had a single track for the Contributor Summit, and it, we found out, you know, turned out a huge percentage of the people were actually not super interested in contributing to the core engines of all this stuff, right? They wanted to... Let's talk about extension points. Let's talk about better ways to write modules, better ways to automate things. And you saw that just reified quite literally at the Contributor Summit here where we had kind of a split track. And I thought that was really fascinating because I kind of think about it. I mean, for all of us who've been involved in the config management universe for the last decade or however long, you know, in the beginning, there was definitely an, even a couple of, even a year ago, two years ago, I still find myself in circumstances or, or conversations where you kind of have to still sell the idea of config management to people. Like, 
hey, this is a thing. It's actually a good idea. And right. I'd still run into, yeah, but why do I want that? I've got my scripts and everything's great. And so you'd have to sell it. But now, you know, I look at the contributor summer and I see the module track and it's just packed. People writing all kinds of stuff. And the conversations that I've been having, and, and I think Luke's keynote hits on this perhaps indirectly a little bit, but I definitely felt that I don't think I at any point had to actually sell the idea of automation, of config management. Didn't have to allay any fears about, you know, automation's going to ruin my life. It's going to, I'm really well, concerned. None of that. Yeah. It, it, it reminds me a lot, actually, of, I worked at VMware back in the day, and I know VMware is a big supporter and sponsor, and it's like, it was the conversations that they kept having to have about, no, virtualization will not ruin your life. Like, it, it actually works. Like, you can put production stuff on it. Yeah. And I remember, actually, for them, the big win was when they got Oracle to certify that you can run Oracle in a VM, and they would... Oracle would support it. That was like the big tipping point. Have you seen, it? was there like an identifiable tipping point like that for configuration management where people were like, this is not going to put me out of a job, this is not going to screw my life or all of my servers up sort of thing? Or, or Clearly when we it? hired Ryan Coleman. <laughs> well, I was thinking less about me and more Puppet 4. No, I think but. the enterprise suddenly felt an immense degree of confidence in deploying Puppet once they knew Ryan was on board. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I instill confidence in production for sure. I mean, I think there's, I think there's a lot of value. In, I mean, so okay, virtualization. Those technologies existed, but maybe it was much more kind of. You got to bust out the digital duct tape. You got to glue all these tools together. VMware comes around. It's sort of more packaged. You know, they're definitely almost explicitly trying to make it something that has more mass appeal. You know, it's not as scary. It still retains a lot of the power of that sort of fundamental shift in terms of virtualization at the time. But it's something that's sort of presented in a way that people are like, oh yeah, it fits in my brain. And I don't know, like... It had, they yeah. had the VCR controls, right? Exactly. Because, <laughs> I mean, for config management, I mean, people people were doing it before it had a name, right? I mean, people, I think, understood the idea, automation's good, I've got script. Yeah. <laughs> before it had a name that wasn't CFA. Make files. Make files, yeah. But every, you know, a M4. lot of shops at the time that you would consider to be, oh, they've got their, they got their act together. I mean, they were doing those kinds of things. And I think, in, in my mind, I don't know, this is just my personal opinion, but I feel like once tools started to come out that really started to make it, kind of simplify it a little bit, make it sort of more accessible to people, then suddenly you start appealing to groups of people that are like, oh, well, I could do that, except I don't have the, ex I'm not a, I'm not a, Corn shell wizard or whatever it was at the time. I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah. like I can't. All, I can't do they're that. They're laughing at us right now with the bash bug anyway. So yeah, like, that's that's true. <laughs> what do you mean? They, why didn't we listen? <laughs> if only we listened. Shell people, you know? But I do think, you know, honestly, I think one of the tipping points, though, getting back to your original question, was it. You know, as much as I kind of a buzzword, but the whole the whole DevOps movement. It's, I'm sorry I think for it's, that. Sorry. <laughs> I know. But I think I'm going to blame Chris for the DevOps movement. No, but but really, it's sort, of, it's sort of made a lot of this stuff mainstream and talked about how you can adopt it you know, from a cultural perspective in your company as well. And so I think it's given a lot of legitimacy to the configuration management tools as a part of that solution. Well, it's certainly built a tribe and a group, you know, an identifiable tribe and a group where you, like, you don't, you were talking about, like, everybody had their shell scripts, every company had their own versions of that. Maybe you left the company, you might have taken the scripts with you to the new place, but the whole point is, is now you can actually go to a place where this stuff is the either like from a meetup and, and community perspective but also from like a code perspective like I don't have to write scripts for deploying Apache yeah. myself I, there's a thing that I can go get and I don't have to learn all of those yeah. well you saw it in I mean because 
developers were doing that at a different layer of the stack for a while. You know, let's talk about libraries, let's release these components that are reusable. Obviously, that worked out great because software is flawless. But <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. But you know, the thing that they lacked though is they were operating at a level that was sufficiently removed from operational stuff, right? right? And then you had people at the operational level that were really close to all those actual running infrastructure, making sure stuff is up, but they didn't have that other piece of the puzzle, which was reuse, applying a little bit, you know, it, it's sort of, I think to Don's point, what the DevOps movement brought to the table is, I think, fundamentally, you know, one of the big important parts of that is it married this idea of, here's some basic concepts about software, how it's constructed, sort of the computer science, you just how to build tools kind of thing, but actually putting it in the firing line, so to speak, of, okay, it's actually responsible now for running a bunch of stuff, and then seeing where those two different ideas just completely fall apart, and you have to come up with something new that actually works in that environment. Well, there was this trying to convince people, no, this will not take your jobs. Like, if you, if you stop having to do the stupid stuff, the boring stuff, you could actually do the exciting, the interesting yeah. stuff, you know? And I think that was, I think you even, I'm sure you see it today, there's still There's still that fear, yeah. So, in my canonical case, and I hope whoever this person is who spoke to me at a conference isn't listening, but they had 1,600 VMs and 400 sysadmins. <laughs> And every time they instantiated another four servers, they hired a new person whose job was to watch those four servers. <laughs> and that was a conversation where the guy's like, so if I adopt Puppet, will I have people have a job? And normally I say no. <laughs> I'm like, sure, your team of 10 people can go on to work on better, brighter things, more interesting things. But Our stuff scales people, to four servers. 400, <laughs> 400 sure. people? Some of those people are going to find a better job. Yeah, yeah. wow, that's... <laughs> That's kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah. So let's keynote that. So we looking forward. A couple of really big announcements were the JVM server announcement that the server has been tuned and be all JVM. Talk a little bit about that. What what was the driving force behind doing that? And the ops guys. The ops guys. Yeah. 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 Java. Absolutely. Everybody it's uh. Java. Yep. It's not written in Java. Throwing it out there, reminding everyone. Well, yeah. I actually think the story of that's pretty interesting, David, because that literally started from a demo from, I guess, a twenty percent project, for want of a better name, with yeah. Chris Price that's originally. Totally like he he took parts of the Indirector, rewrote them in Closure, which were already having all this great success with PuppetDB, and literally did a demo internally that was nowhere near completely functional. But I think like a third of the company saw it, and within a few days, everyone in the company had watched the video of that demo, and it just really quickly grabbed mindshare. People were like, "Oh my god!" You know, startup time of various processes was really fixed and I think one of the things that is really interesting looking at the historical perspective is a lot of the reason why us moving to the puppet server on the JVM was reasonably easy with JRuby was a whole bunch of work Brice Figaro had done mm -hmm. years and years and years before getting all of the puppet master just running as a single JRuby process and fixing odd little SSL interaction bugs and various things so I think it's sort of this really great story of you know community people <laughs> yeah like Brice was like years ahead of his time yeah. really <laughs> and focusing yeah. on that you're going to want this on I know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, th I think the short answer is really just throughput's important, correctness is important, like it needs to be instrumented so it can actually be better operationalized, and we just need to have more control over the components involved. Like, we need more control over Ruby runtime. Like, Ruby, we use as an extension language, people customize stuff. Right. Of course, like, you know, we run into limitations where what if you have stuff for two different puppet environments, but it's the same Ruby class and it's the same runtime. Like, there's, you know, there's just, it, it didn't help that it was like literally the slowest. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe Corn Shell. 
but yeah, I, I mean, think I Puppet think, DV was a big part of it. Yeah, so I, I think we didn't work. Yeah, I think you know, it's it's not like we jumped into it immediately, right? Because I think you know, the initial sort of experiment, the the canary, I think, was we we tried it out with Puppet DV, and that was you know, it's an adjunct service at the time. You it's optional. You can roll it out. You get some benefits if you happen to do it, and that was really that really helped us, I think, vet a couple of hypotheses, which was like, look, if we give people something and it's actually, okay, what are the primary complaints about every sysadmin has about running something on a JVM? Like, okay, it's gonna eat up all my RAM, it's gonna be mega slow, it's gonna be difficult to actually monitor, maintain, and all that stuff is crashing and it sucks anyway. It didn't come with an init script. It didn't come with an init script. How do I actually <laughs> yum install it on my systems? So we're like, okay, well, good news. We actually have the existing old crummy system written in Ruby and we have an alternative that we're going to write and it's going to run on a JVM and we'll see. And ultimately it turned out that, you know, and I don't think we give people, basically, I don't think we give people enough credit. And I think admins, especially these days, are kind of like, look, if it it gets a job done, if I can install it easily, and I just have to worry about less, like, you kind of don't care what it's written in. Right. And right. I think that eventually was proven. Like, there's a new, like, literally a new deploy of PuppetDB every 10 minutes at this point. And that's, like, a ton of people that normally, you know, you don't think about a JVM being run in an ops context. But those are people that kind of prove out that if we can make something that's faster and we make it easy to manage and we make it self-regulating and kind of bulletproof, then that's what's important. You know, what's important is the operational characteristics. So we kind of took that and we we're like, we had a ton of success there. Why can't we repeat that with the existing master? And during the contributor summit, I mean, we actually just, Chris was sitting at a table and, uh, you know, I stood up there and I'm like, hey, we got this thing. Literally, how many of you, you know, raise your hand if you have a puppet test environment where you can deploy something new and try it out and everyone raises their hand. We're like, okay, sit down at that table. Chris is going to help you get it going. And then anytime you run into a problem, like, we'll just try and we'll fix it. You know, live. We'll do it live. We'll do it live. Um, yeah. And yeah so so, it, it sounds like then, I mean, and, and this would make sense that that first experiment with sort of PuppetDB prompted some architectural changes that you would have had to have made that were good architectural changes to make that allowed you to do this. Because you were, you were saying that, you know, you, you had to sort of break stuff out and make sure that it worked in, in, in a JVM process and all that kind of stuff. So that sort of was really the, started the thinking about being able to even put stuff in a JVM yeah. and go down that road. And it's allowed us to, to do things like, for example, a lot of users on, and this is another hypothesis, we, we vetted out on the PuppetDB side, where we were like, well, okay, we could ship them this one unified service. And you see this a lot now with, you know, Go microservices and mm -hmm. things like that, where hey, you start this thing up, it's got its web server already ready to go. It's all self-contained. It's in this one thing. It does one thing and it does it pretty well. And you don't have to have, okay, well now I need to install Passenger and I need to install Apache and I need to install like all this other machinery in order to make the stuff work. Right. And oh, I got to figure out how many cores I have and I got to have this many versions of the process, et cetera, et cetera. Right. One thing starts it all up. So it's just less moving pieces and it turns out Admins kind of like things that are sort of self-regulating and don't have as many moving pieces that they have to manage. So we'll that's been that, beneficial. That, was, that wasn't another interesting theme, I thought. But the other thing before we move on, I wanted to talk about was Puppet Apps because that was the other big announcement. And and I'll be honest, like I thought the announcement was fascinating, but I don't know that I entirely understand like all of the ways in which you might use it. So let's walk through that because because I'm sure that like there is it's one of those things. There's there's I, I think one of the big things about that announcement was like we have an example, but it's it's like a new ecosystem that you know we're, we're building for that. So the first two apps will be Minecraft and Angry Birds. <laughs> <laughs> Angry Birds and Minecraft. Sorry. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no turn. So I think the thing has been that you know like. Puppet's been too monolithic mm -hmm. for a long time. Like whether you were using Puppet Enterprise, whether you were using open source, it was somewhat complicated. Even if you want to do something as simple as breaking out the CA, there wasn't just a separate CA s service that you ran. 
you just ran another puppet master and said, well, this one's the CA, disable the CA functionality on the rest of them. Right. So essentially you had five monoliths, just one of them configured slightly differently when you went and deployed them. And you had to have a, C a sysadmin hire just to monitor that. Yeah. So it, and if you wanted to update it, you'd have to update the whole monolith yeah. sort of across the board, right? right. That, that's the bigger problem is, yeah. right. you know, it, it's... You want to fix a CA bug. You're updating your Puppet config server as well, yeah. right. and that that destabilizes. Yeah, it's it's yeah, not as awesome. Yeah. So yeah. I think if you look at you know we've spent heaps of time working on consolidating wire formats and all those things that you really need so that we can have a bunch of the things that were just one master before. Like we're we're now in a position where we can start moving forward and go. Well, maybe we just have a dedicated file server for Puppet. Like that's actually much more feasible than it was a year ago even. So I think if you look at Puppet apps, like that's really about us being able to go, like, there's these things that you can incrementally adopt at a different cadence, and you don't just have this one forced cadence across all your Puppet ecosystem. So it almost seems like, it, you might cringe at this, but it's like kind of like microservices for Puppet, almost. It's like services that talk to each other and can provide services to the totally. ecosystem, and you don't, uh, you know, Netflix, they always talk about the model, of like they can bring up canary nodes and things, but, but new functionality, and as long as it talks the same wire format, older consumers of that don't care. Yep, absolutely. Um, I may maybe not go quite so far as to call them micro puppets, like they're a little larger than micro, but <laughs> they're definitely not monoliths anymore. <laughs> well, a lot of that wasn't possible for, until fairly recently. We, I mean, we had to do a lot of engineering to actually put in like, okay, the comms between a master and PuppetDB or an agent and a master or node classification protocol, like those actually need to be codified, versioned, endpoints that are versioned and things like, you know, we actually have, because the only reason why this would work is it presumes that you actually have kind of a more stable, a more kind of semver foundation right. upon which you can drop these things. Because if the stuff underneath you can change at any time, then, you know, good luck building an app on top of that, as, as many of your listeners <laughs> probably know. Which we'll talk about, it's like, it's a release management problem, right? I was about to say that. We're yeah, it's a really to do release problem. problem. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. We, not to you know get too pessimistic about, it, but we've been talking about the shiny, happy future of the JVM. But I know internally, like to be pretty honest about it, we, we were pretty worried about how sysadmins would react. And generally, the sysadmins in the company were like, "Oh my god, Java!" Like you know, I've been scarred so many times. I don't know. What did you see, Chris, from sort of outside I've, of the? Podcast? I've got a large Java background. I know how to monitor the JVM and how to tune it and how to play with that. But I can't imagine that a lot of other people, especially people on the Ruby side and on the PHP side, are going to be like. Um, I've set up monitoring for PuppetDB deep inside the JVM. Yep. I don't know many people who did that. Yep. Yep. That's maybe a challenge. Yeah. yeah. But I think a lot of the people who were afraid of the JVM, like the benefits outweighed <coughs> any of their fears. I mean, I think if we came out with something and we said, hey, it's, here's this new thing, it's slower, but it's compatible. Oh, and by the way, like startup time is worse and it runs on Java. Like, but wait, <laughs> it's enterprising. Yay! Yeah, <laughs> that probably would not have been smart. But instead, I mean, because ultimately I think you have, to, you have to give people a reason. And you need to it, measure startup time on the same machine with only 512 megs of RAM. Yeah, well, that's true. No such thing as free lunch. But definitely I think, you know, if we can tell people, I mean, I was a bit concerned about it. I was kind of afraid people were going to come out with pitchforks and things like that. But ultimately, I think people are like, oh, okay, is it actually faster? Like, oh, let me try it. Oh, okay, well, yeah, it's dead. You know, that, that works out much better for me. Right. And, well, I, and, I, mean, and I don't need to install these other things, so okay, that's... 
And it wasn't like we were about to enforce a Java DSL on everyone, which, like, even as I say the words in my brain... That sounds terrifying. It's, you must not write it. Like, parentheses, yeah. resource, parentheses. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. And people have, like, I mean, yeah, people have legitimate... People had questions. They go, oh, does that mean that I can't write my extensions in Ruby and things like that? It's like, no, you can continue to do that. Like, sure, go for it. You know, before we move on from the keynote, I think there's actually a third announcement that, no offense to Puppet Apps, but I think is much more exciting. <laughs> being that the Puppet Wait, what is he going to take? Yeah, it's not going to be the Puppet Forge. Uh, I so finally <laughs> implemented Features IOS two years ago. <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> it is true. Have that's a, drink. a lot of why it hurts. Uh, yeah. So, but no. So, Luke, one of the, the the things that Luke announced at the keynote was the Puppet Approved Program, and and to me, this is a really personal announcement. And I think one of the biggest things we're going to do on the Forge, and really, you know, a five year span around. So last year, Luke had announced a supported program of modules, which was sort of the high bar for content that Puppet Labs would stand behind and you go pick up the phone call. But it had this stupidly ambitious target of covering 80% of the infrastructure you wanted to manage, which was absurd and not capable to hit given the amount of staff we have at Puppet Labs. We're still a small company and the, and the sort of really high bar we set. And so Puppet approved to me is, is sort of us coming full circle and saying, okay, no, the 80% target is still really important and it's still really possible, but it's sort of um, an acknowledgement that Puppet Labs is not going to solve that problem internally. This is a problem best solved by the admins doing the work, running infrastructure with Puppet. And so Puppet Approved is a program of content on the Puppet Forge that has been reviewed. It meets a high bar of quality. We know it's going to work in production. It's well described. It's well documented. It has all the bells and whistles we need to consider it a really great module. And we recommend it. And so that, that was what we announced. And we're starting small with it, but we're sort of building this automation platform where anytime you publish a module to the Puppet Forge, we'll analyze it for you. And we'll tell you, look, you passed the style guide. We've run your tests. We've checked all your metadata. We've even inspected your documentation. And we're giving you some feedback on how your module can improve. And assuming you've met a bar, we're going to immediately say, we recommend this. We think it's going to be really good. We think you're going to use it in production with success. And to me, once we get to that platform, and, and, and until then, we're going to have a manual review process. And so we'll be expanding through the rest of this year. But when we get to that point, I think we're just going to be on the other side of this plateau where 80% of your infrastructure really can be managed out of the box with Puppet. And you'll be, you know, doing a lot of great things with it. And you'll get to focus on writing your modules for your complicated problem. And I think that'll be a big turning point for us. Can yeah. you give a couple examples, though, of the Puppet Approved modules now? Yeah. So uh, there's, I think, the ones we, we've, we've talked about. There's a Cloudera module. There's Sensu. There's Jenkins. And, in fact, the Jenkins module is used internally in our QA infrastructure. We use this module to produce all the Jenkins we use for our testing. And then one another that I'm really excited about is the Augeus Providers module, which sort of combines the, the power of Augeus with the usability of the Puppet DSL, because anybody who's used Augeus will not attest to its usability. So I, you know, I compose all my emails in Augeus. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. You're right. Augeus ML. lens for yeah. Australian. <laughs> <laughs> Augeus, XSLT to DocBook. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I can republish those in any format I want. Any yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I think it's an announcement like that is probably the most important part about that is that there, there's now a story for how code goes into the forge and you can sort of look at it and, and know whether or not you can sort of trust in production. And that's really, you know, we were talking about people that are being dragged by people into the fold or the configuration manager fold. A lot of times people decry the enterprise as being slow and stodgy, but they care about that story. They want to know what that story looks like. And that's a totally reasonable question, I think. You know, a lot of people, when you, when you, you they're very exuberant and you're like, no, you have to have a story for those things. 
and they're not stupid because they asked that question. Yeah. Right? And so I think providing that service is actually really, really uh, important. It's nice to see that there may be 400 people reviewing modules at the beginning, but, it, and it's fascinating too that we can kind of do that. We can have that level of automation that checks documentation and style and all of those things that you actually would want to care about. Yeah, yeah. It, it, to me it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's a lot of different things in the company coming together and, and it's it, the, the aspect that's, that's super important is, is the community there. But, so the, the Forge is 2,700 pieces of content. 80 of those are contributed by Puppet Labs. So by and large, it's everyone else who's using Puppet who's making it possible to do great things with Puppet out of the box. And, and the content out there is really great and we just don't do a good job of telling you why it is and putting that recommendation behind it. Right. And we're now getting to the point where we can do that and and then for puppet modules. <laughs> well, better than Yelp. Let's go with I don't know hey. open table for yeah. modules. Um, but I was going to do Uber for puppet modules. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we're going to do increased rates when the when the forge is really busy. Yeah. <laughs> Airbnb, you know, put your modules on other people's infrastructure. Yeah, that, that's actually a really good one. I, I don't even know where I was going to go with that, but I, you know, I, I, no, it's okay. But I, These are so pretty I much the best ideas I've heard all <laughs> So when someone comes up to me and I talk about being a product manager at Puppet Labs, there's any number of avenues that they can take and talk to me and, and complain to me about their specific bug with Puppet or whatever and just try to, you know, harangue me in a number of different vectors. And last year was like that. I had just this spectrum of questions that was really broad. And this year, every single person who finds me and recognizes me, it's, I've got this module. Is it Puppet approved? It might be a module they've written. It might be a module they've used, but the interest in this thing is, is blowing me away. And so I, I'm very excited about it. And even when you're on podcasts, <laughs> even when you're on podcasts with co-presenters, they start hassling you about features they requested two years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, yeah. Oh, this is why we love Chris. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, there was a native native client announcement. That was actually I got way more feedback about that than anything else. That was actually genuinely universal. The C factor. Yeah, because everyone's like, yeah, you probably should have done that a while ago. Oh, yeah, like, so, so I, I will say, like, quickly as an intro, like, when we were rehearsing the keynotes, I don't know if any of you, any of you are watching it, like, Luke gets introduced. I, I was the voice of God, I think is the term, <laughs> and introduced him as, you know, original author of Puppet. In the rehearsal, like, as we were going through, I was like, Luke Knee, CEO of Puppet Labs, original author of Factor. And he was halfway through his walk to the stage, and he pretty much fell over. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. Nice. <laughs> But yeah, that's it's a, huge. It's uh, yeah. It turns out C is pretty fast. <laughs> also, it turns out no one actually runs Puppet uh, to run Puppet. They actually run Puppet to configure their systems to do something else that's genuinely useful to the business at hand. So any of the you know memory or CPU resources or I don't what? Know about you, but I run just just to see just to watch you s trace it s trace is like the director's yeah s tracing it's like the director's commentary basically you just uh, <laughs> you see what's going on there that behind the scenes extras why is it making a system call to a domain no reason no reason no reason that's because you're using none of public module <laughs> But yeah, that, that, that's gone. <laughs> Man, I don't even know where to go from there. And then, of course, there were other keynotes uh, at the conference, and uh, Kate Matz did a... That's a direct. Kate Matz on Twitter did uh, a keynote called Trust Me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so she's been... Like, I've been a big fan of Kate for a long time. Like, she runs this newsletter called Tech Leadership News, which honestly has been one of the most useful things for me as a tech manager. Is that, uh, is that like a male... 
It's an email newsletter. Oh, so like DevOps, I should subscribe to that. DevOps. You should totally subscribe to it. So my three, like if while we're sitting here talking about the three email, the only three email newsletters I actually subscribe to and don't just send to the spam folder are DevOps Weekly, Software Lead Weekly, and Tech Leadership News. And all are like really, really high. We will definitely notice. put uh, links in the show notes to that. Yeah, no, I thought it was really great. I had a somewhat limited view of it because I was backstage because I was emceeing, so I only got to see one small camera feed of her presentation. But um, my understanding was that she had some pretty amazing slides with the Star Wars. Yay, Star Wars Troopers. Legos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty awesome. But yeah, I just thought it was a really, really great keynote on how to be a much more effective leader and how to grow leadership more in your organization. Yeah, and, and a lot of her talks center around that particular topic, and I, I think that, that it is very important because you, you're talking about the DevOps movement and its impact, and, and we all know a large part of that is a cultural part and a sort of uh, organizational leadership component to it well, I think so to you really return, can't have that conversation unless you actually examine that totally well. and to return to I think the initial like sort of kickoff of the show the tech industry is often kind of ahistorical and sort of ignores what oh, yeah. happened 10-15 years yep. before and I think you know we were talking about this being golden a bit of a images. conference <laughs> of reflection totally like containers golden images and nothing like <laughs> containers or anything else anyway <laughs> um, you but, know the, the IBM OS 360 guys you're like with the virtual position they're just shaking their no no so yeah. I have Sol- I have yeah. Solaris admins on my team and they're like containers zones zones we had this years and before and the BSD people are like hello Jails yeah. hey yeah. the funny thing in the moment is you've got the Mac people going yeah system D welcome to launch D 2009 <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, but anyway moving on I think you know we've we've had crazy growth in the community and in the company so it's been sort of important to sort of step back and reflect a little about like how do we make sure that the things we're really good about Puppet at the very first Puppet Camp actually sort of continue at these really big events and I don't think you can do that without like you've got to have managers at some point like if you think you've got a flat structure you've just got an invisible hierarchy and once you've got a hierarchy you've got to make sure that's something that actually supports the good people totally (laughs) Like, it's not like a teacher's going, well, you, Johnny, you're going to be the bully this week. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it's funny too, right, because you talk, I think we talk a lot about, you know, the, again, I'm going to keep using that form because it's just funny. I, I hope you're not listening. Still. We talk about scaling our systems. But now you know we, where to get the people to approve modules. That's true. <laughs> um, we talk about scaling our systems, but we often sort of don't talk about scaling organizations yeah. and how that's supposed to work. Um, so it's good that, that uh, you know, we're having Did you have some yeah. advice for that? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the reasons we, we asked Kate to do the keynote is we don't want we don't want the conference just to be all puppet all the time. We want it to be something that system administrators can learn something new. You know, so the people, like we said, we have people who've been using Puppet for forever, and they kind of know all the Puppet stuff. And it's sort of nice to have a little a little extra content that's not always always puppet and a lot of people in our community you've started off as sysadmins and have ended up moving into managerial roles and I know we kind of have this floor in our industry where we go you know you're really awesome with computers let's give you people right but <laughs> and they're like they don't follow sometimes the they're rules. actually like, good they at people they their forehead and they don't listen yeah. and I, I totally want to promote here Lindsay Holmwood who just did a fantastic yeah. talk on cognitive biases yes. has a post on his blog on fractional I think if you just search for Lindsay Holmwood thought leader you'll probably find him um, <laughs> you're welcome Lindsay <laughs> Uh, he's got a great post on the transition from sysadmin to manager. Like, it's an amazing post. Well, so that's a great segment. I wanted to talk about a couple of the talks that were my favorite. The DevOps means business talk, and Gene and Nicole uh, presented Gene Kim and Nicole Forsgren Velasquez. The Puppet Labs, the DevOps 
uh, study. And, and I actually had the pleasure of introducing the four of you at Velocity That's when right. you were talking about it. Yeah, so so that has been sort of, was released and sort of has been making a rise. But let's talk a little bit about that because there's some, there were some very fascinating takeaways. And if you haven't seen uh, that, that presentation or haven't looked at the study and sort of um, your guys' takeaways as, as the, the study authors, I think there's some fascinating stuff in there. So I think it's a really interesting sort of couple of years. Like it's like the third, three years of the DevOps survey. The first year was more like, are people actually doing these practices? You know, I think in the early days of Agile, there was a lot more talk than actually doing. And one of the things I think that's been great about the DevOps sort of practice, the DevOps label has been that it was more labeling activities people were already doing. And I think we've been really, you know, Chris has been a big part of this, like trying to make sure that we don't want to follow the path of agile consultants for software engineering. Right. The very we first DevOps days, we'd never to have a DevOps manifesto. Yeah, totally. And I think the closest thing we came was the cultural automation measurement sharing yeah. sort of formulation, which is... A scam. <laughs> a scam. Yeah. If you oh, put the can, that's right. Yeah. So <laughs> Let's put the cans. sharing in the front. So that's why we need a gene to put the lean part in. That's right. We've been talking about... Camel? Uh, no. Oh. Clamps. We would love to do, we would love to do a DevOps RFC for uh, April Fool's. <laughs> that would be kind of awesome. <laughs> we can give you a puppet manifest that tells you whether you're doing DevOps or not. Right, yes. Um, Run it through the fortune and yeah. like, eh. Yeah. I approve. No. <laughs> Yes. But yeah, so we, like to sum up really quickly, you know, we had three years ago was the survey going, are people following these practices? And overwhelmingly it was like, yes, there's lots and lots of people following these. The next year was, how are people being successful doing this? And we showed, and I'm not going to remember the stats, I think it was 30 times as frequently people were able to deploy applications once they were actually following paths of automation and measuring their processes and improving them. But the thing that I think was really fascinating this year, which was honestly all up to Nicole and her amazing statistical analysis, was showing that the companies that follow these principles actually outperform their competitors in the marketplace. And that's kind of a crazy story to tell because we're all pretty good at talking to another sysadmin and going, obviously, this is why it's more important to automate something. You talk to them for 10 minutes and they're like, totally got it. But when you're talking to CXOs at perhaps more traditional companies, it takes a bit more to get them on board. Yeah, it's interesting though. A lot of times the, the reason that doesn't resonate is because more more people is more budget and budget is like how you measure yourself and the right. So more people is better, right? Yeah. More is better. That right? is and one of the typical problems in large organizations doing DevOps adoption, getting the metal management out. That whole sort of, yeah, one of, letting one, people do the work. One of my favorite takeaways from the study, and I can't remember if it was, this is when you presented at Velocity, you were talking about the fact that whether or not you call it a DevOps team doesn't actually matter or a DevOps engineer. No, so this, this, so this was fascinating. So I don't know how, who here is in favor of people having DevOps in their title? Okay, resounding silence, like in case that was, that was I, not- I would say I'm actually not really opinionated okay. either way. Like I think, I think maybe a couple of years ago I was much more strident about it and now I'm just kind of, I, I just stopped really caring. Note to producer, edit out Deepak's bit because it refutes my point, but. <laughs> <laughs> There's one exception to me, however. If it's more like an evangelization role or sure. a Kickstarter or an Igniter, yep. but if it's an engineer, Or a then... chief DevOps officer. So I, no. I, I, definitely, <laughs> I think a lot of us have been of this opinion that it's a dumb idea and that it's like saying, I'm a good programmer, programmer. Like, it's just the right way to do operations. And so You're an agile. Sort of I'm an agile. I'm too agile. But the survey really kind of blew my mind here, which was that the teams that actually have adopted and called themselves DevOps teams or DevOps engineers actually do really, really well in terms of performance. 
And I've been thinking about this for a while since the survey, and I've sort of come to the conclusion, I think it's because it's essentially a tribal signifier. It's like it's putting a little names sign are, up and names go, are important. we do, I mean, we work words. this way. Words. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah. kind of, like, people were, I don't know, because I've been doing software dev for a while, people were complaining, like, when Ajax came out, and they're like, what's this? It's like this buzzword like it's XML HTTP request. Everybody but it lets knows you have that. a conversation. But it lets you have a conversation without having sure. to say XML HTTP request. But I think my like, fear was that DevOps in job titles actually meant that you would have conversations, but they were really f- stupid conversations. Like you need twelve years of DevOps. Yeah, like <laughs> that sort of ridiculous thing. But we're thinking a DevOps engineer with twelve yeah, years experience. with certified <laughs> DevOps. I'm really keen to try and correlate that data a little more because I feel like. My suspicion is that the people with DevOps titles and DevOps teams are in rather more conservative sort of vertical industries and kinds of companies where it's really, really important to go, no, look, we're not going to do this the way people used to do it. Right. Well, quite literally in those sorts of organizations, you know, we sort of make the joke, but it happens where they say, I buy me the DevOps. And it's like, actually, we're going to buy you people oh that my God. call themselves DevOps. But, but you're shaking your head and it's totally like, I'm shaking my head too, but the thing is, it's like... At least they that's, want it. Well, yeah. right. And that's that's actually how you can sort of start some subversive change. Totally. Or it's kind of actually... Do. My second worst conference story from the last year is someone came up to me at a rather large conference going, so we had an ops team and a dev team and they really weren't getting along, so we formed a DevOps team. But now the DevOps team and the ops team aren't getting along. That, that's one of the patterns. <laughs> yeah. The second one is it's just a scrum team, which is now called being a DevOps team. And then there's a third team, which is it's guys in charge of continuous integration and continuous delivery. And the one where they put a DevOps team in between the devs and the ops, that's just another silo. I actually like to call it, it turns out when I look at that, what I find a lot of it, those are actually, we used to call those release engineering teams. But it's like, really easy to fix them. That's actually what they're doing. All you do to fix them is you form a DevOps ops team. Yeah. <laughs> oops. Dev oops. <laughs> so we're poking a lot of fun at it. But, you know, I was talking to the, at the Metron party last night uh, to a group that was telling me, you know, they had formed a DevOps team and that they're bringing Puppet in to help that DevOps team succeed. And it, it seems silly at the outset of it. But truly, I think your point is sound that it, it, it's really about whatever vehicle it takes for this company to start thinking about their, their processes differently and start changing the way they act. If they need a fancy label for it, it's a little silly, but if that's what it takes to get the change yeah. going, then so there's, as long a, as there's, there's a ton results. of inertia, right? Like all yeah. these giant corporations have a ton of inertia in how they do IT. And this yeah. is like, I, I almost view it as a sign that, okay, you've been able to actually move this giant boulder, uh, you know, a little bit. It started rolling. It's just, okay, it's going really slowly, but at least it's moving. And, you know, it's the toughest part to actually get it started. If you can get it moving, that's a good thing. But I've also seen that they put in a DevOps team and those are the only guys who are allowed to write Puppet code. And the ops guys are like, "Uh, but what are you going to give us? And they're just created another barrier where it's not only the devs who are creating software and delivering and just throwing over the fence, but it's also the DevOps throwing just something over the fence which then the up people need to match. Mm. So it, so it really yeah, depends on how you actually build such a team and who's involved and what the culture in your organization is. Well, to the, the point of the study, co-host Sasha Bates gave a talk about, we talk a lot from a cultural perspective about empathy and how that's important. And then we say like, empathy is important. And then we go out of that, that room and we say, if you're a DevOps engineer, you and it's like that's not empathetic like at all so stop doing that you know and so she made that sort of a stupid you can't actually can't have a credible conversation we should hug them about right about empathy if you're making fun of them because they are part of a devops team like that just doesn't make any sense i think i agree with you up until director of devops (laughs) (laughs) or chief 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 devops officer which is your next title oh man (laughs) I'm 
just salivating. I'm just start calling him that. The Chief DevOps Officer. Oh, I think that's, I'm going to talk to Bill and get that. Get that, get that guy, <laughs> business card printed. I wanted to talk to him about Chris's talk because I loved it. It was seven puppet horror stories in seven years. It almost had like a Snow White and the seven puppet horrors. <laughs> and, and then I noticed there was somebody else doing the seven things. Yeah, yeah. No, and I loved it because uh, it had all of these things. So... I loved it for two reasons. First of all, you had all these lessons that were great. I took a picture of the, the summary of the seven lessons. We'll link to that in the show notes. But DNS, was, you asked, you were asking the audience, what do you think the problem is? And someone was like, DNS! And I, I was like, oh, channeling Pete Cheslock there. It's like, it's always a DNS problem. But you're like, no, none of the seven war stories actually involve DNS directly at all. That was interesting. Wait, Chris did a talk without a DNS problem? No, there were actually two DNS problems in there, but it's, those were not the root cause. Right, there weren't the, there weren't the, there weren't the, the seven like, things that you learned. So that was funny. And then the last one of the learnings was um, or lessons was uh, release management is like hard. And I'm like, yes, I want to hug you. So I, I like that talk. It was very good. Thanks. So other ta- there, there were, I mean, what, were your, what were your favorite talks? Chris, you mentioned, uh, well, you both mentioned Lindsay's talk. I think what Lindsay did, um, and Lindsay and I have been chatting a lot about cognitive biases, and I'm actually talking at DevOps Days about the same sort of topic, but he did an amazing overview of essentially like systemic flaws in the way we process information as people that really affect how we do our job in technology. And it was just, it was super entertaining. It was like lots of crowd participation. He only swore seven or eight times, which for an Australian is practically like he was in church. So (laughs) no, it was amazing. I thought it was really, really, really great. It was super engaging, just lots of really fun things. So things like he even sort of played little games on the crowd and sort of went, you know, sort of framed some questions with some little bits of information that would cause you to answer something in a certain way and then showed that that's actually a little flaw in the way our brains process stuff. Right. It was love, really, really good stuff. I love uh, I, I presentations that troll the audience effectively. Yeah. Effectively, because I've been in presentations that do it ineffectively and it's horrible. Yeah. But when they do it well, it's good. Especially sysadmins when you're like, I'm going to ask you a question. And they're like, you're playing a trick on me. <laughs> and then he plays two tricks on you. And then he plays two tricks on you. It was great. Double fault. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I didn't spend I didn't a whole lot of time in the sessions at all. I, you know, I, I think I've just been super busy. I, I went to a couple of my team's talks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Morgan Haskell, Lauren Rother, Colleen Murphy. I heard really good things about Morgan and Lauren's talk. Yeah, that was a really good talk. So both of them did kind of introduction talks for writing modules mm-hmm. at different levels. And, and certainly when they're, when they're up on YouTube, I think they're going to be really popular just from that, that crowd of people that are coming in. Yeah, that one oh one of using Puppet. Yeah. It's just yeah, they they did a really great job of framing those, um, fr- framing how to get started. Eric Sorensen did a really really good talk on the platform stuff and where that's all sort of going. I saw some bits and pieces of Henrik's on the new language. He did a sing along where that's going. He, I must have <laughs> missed no, literally he did a sing along <laughs> with the old so McDonald Henrik. in Swedish. No, oh, I saw that on Twitter. That it was, that, it was that in English. True. Oh my god. That's 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 is old amazing. McDonald actually? I guess it's. I never thought about it being an international. An international it thing. It is. Is his, is his name McDonald? Are they all Scottish? Yeah. They're, I learned something new every day. That's fascinating. Bringing the world together. Chris Price's <laughs> talk on the new JVM server was amazing. Like on the new Puppet server. I, I liked uh, Sam Cutler's talk on the kind of. He talked at a high level about sort of the changing world and containers and and all of you know puppet together and how you do all of that stuff it was it was interesting and i, I actually tweeted this because he was coming up with new words but like deliverability uh and he actually defined that as, as keeping the promises we make to our companies and to our our peers our co-workers about like like uh, you know this is the quintessential like if i'm a developer and i write code deliverability is the thing that i make it so that when i give it to ops like i'm i'm able to do that in a, in a reasonable way so i, I thought that was 
That's uh, cool. Interesting, yeah, interesting insights on his talk. So I'm assuming there's going to be a puppet conf 2015. Absolutely, and the Yay. best thing about this is it's coming back to Portland. Oh, so nice. Portland, Oregon. Is that why I saw in the like interstitial videos there was a bunch of like Portland stuff going on when you were prepping people for Portland? Yeah, we've just been like prepping people you know, for subliminal subliminal messaging yeah. going, you know, <laughs> do you like beer? Beer, Come bikes, to Portland. beers. Do you like bicycles? Do you <laughs> like beers? Wait, wait, but now you confuse me. Beer and bicycles, then you need to do something in Rotterdam. Close to the Belgian border, but close enough to Amsterdam also. Let's stay tuned for what we're doing in Europe. But definitely the PuppetConf US in the next year is nice. going to be Portland. Early October, I believe, we actually have it. October 5th through 9th in Portland, Oregon. So I think as Luke put it, you know, the coffee will be great, the food will be great, and the weather will be nice. Maybe. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. But honestly, Portland's, Portland's really awesome. I loved moving to Portland um, as someone who'd lived, you know, in the Bay Area. And it's really cheap. There's lots of really fun places You're to go out. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The fog doesn't care. <laughs> well, Brian, Deepak, uh, Chris, Nigel, and Don, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we are doing a tooltip. We haven't done one in a while. And this is a uh, Morosky. Stephen Morosky will be proud of us. The Windows tooltip. Uh, i actually doing a lot of work on Windows with a client right now. So whenever I find like cool little Windows utilities, they're actually useful in my daily life these days. And the tool we are looking at tonight is called PS Readline. PS is in PowerShell. It is a, uh, we'll link to it in the show notes, the GitHub repo. Um, but basically, it is a set of PowerShell commandlets, scriptlets, whatever, that brings all of the goodness that we've come to expect out of readline to PowerShell, things like syntax coloring, simple syntax error notifications, key bindings for like Emacs, bash style completion, which that's actually the killer feature, bash and Z shell style interactive history search. So Seth will feel right at home on his. Mm. Windows. But, but does it have any like fish shell supports? <laughs> you hipster, get out of here. Uh, get, get out of here with your silly little Yeah, no, shells. actually the question you should be asking is does it implement insecure function <laughs> parsing so you can feel right at home when using PowerShell? <laughs> you can, you too can be pwned via CGI scripts. Right. PowerShell CGI scripts. <laughs> oh god, don't yeah. say that. I know. But yeah, so if you do a lot of uh, work in the Windows PowerShell, uh, like I have been doing, and you are sad because things like undo, redo, uh, word movement and kill, automatic saving of history, ooh, including sharing a history across live sessions, that's actually super useful. Oh, um, so like a, like a, like a Tmux or something sharing. Yeah, well, so you can, do, you can actually do this with Bash, where if you've got multiple... Uh, so if you've got like multiple shells running with Tmux or screen or whatever, and you type some big long command in one, and then go and then switch to another, it will at the end of every command it actually flushes it, yeah it saves it flushes it out to the history file, so you can actually read the history in other shells. And oh. so, yeah, so basically it, it's doing that, and you have to set up in Bash too. Bash doesn't do it by default, but uh, you can do it in Bash. You can do it here apparently too now. Which yeah, I've, been, I've been using that. I've been using that a lot recently, and it actually sometimes is confusing because I inadvertently like go up the command history and then hit enter, thinking it's the command that I ran in that specific window. Yes. And and there have been some hilarious snafus there. 
Yes, you have to be careful, but it's actually, it is actually really useful. It's super useful. Yeah. So anyway, uh, check that out. Again, we'll link to it in the link to the GitHub repo in the show notes. It's uh, by an individual named Jason Shirk, who also, I guess, uh, he collaborated with some other people on this, Keith Hill and Ed Wilson, um, and we will link to those as well in the show notes. So conference season is starting to wind down, but there's still some DevOps days going on. There's Belgium, of course. Uh, we will be there covering it live for the audience. Berlin, Chicago, as we mentioned, Helsinki, Tel Aviv, and Vancouver. So those are still going on. Um, but I, I believe we're starting, yeah, uh, conference season is starting to wind down for the holidays. And, of course, we've been doing a lot of conference coverage uh, here on the Ship Show. Um, but as we get into the holiday season, we'll, we'll go back to covering regular, normal, topic-y stuff. Um, but, of course, we will link to uh, all of the, the shows on on the show notes, and you can check them out there. I know Lisa's also, I think, Lisa's the last big one that I know about. It's like the second, well, second week in November. Which I mention it because they, well, I'm speaking there, but they also have a, they're having a DevOps track this year, which is kind of interesting. I mean, you're missing the the big cloudy one, right? Amazon reinvents. Oh, of course, Amazon reinvent. We actually mentioned it uh, in the last episode. You will be there, right? Yeah, you should absolutely come uh, check out reinvent. Some pretty cool stuff happening. We're gonna have a booth and some other secret things, which I can't talk about yet, but. Yeah, well, it should be come a on, lot of fun. You can tell your friends, Pete. Uh, there's <laughs> like rules and stuff, apparently. Maybe at the next one. <laughs> All right. So we'd like to thank CodeChip.io for sponsoring this episode. And from New York, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Boston, this is Pete signing off. And from Seattle, this is Seth signing off. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks.